welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This podcast's stated goals are to change how the world treats musculoskeletal pain, to create experts in the treatment of neck, back, and shoulder pain, and to advance the world's understanding of this pain, to inspire researchers, thinkers, and innovators, to empower patients and embolden caretakers. Follow us on this journey and let's learn and grow together. This podcast is brought to you by the Body Guitar Clinic because your body is a finely tuned instrument. Like all finely tuned instruments, it must be properly cared for in order to play the beautiful music it was intended to play. Care for your body and use it correctly, and it will play music that is unique to you, your life song. This is Sean Wheeler, MD, and let's get your body in tune. Welcome back. I'm excited about this week's episode. I will tell you that I have followed Dr. Rob Gray for a long time, and, and it's mostly because I'm, I'm really into motion. I'm really into how people move and how they acquire motion. And as a follower of Dr. Gray, I really felt like I was going to translate the things that I've learned from him into an understanding of stability as we move forward with neck, back, and shoulder pain. And it didn't really turn into that, but it's a really interesting conversation anyway. So I really wanted to include this today, but I wanted to give this this precursor ahead of time. He does what's called constraint-led approach to coaching. And the normal way of coaching is, is that a person will teach a movement and then perfect that movement and then try to integrate it into uh, the sport or the or whatever it is the person's doing. And the constraint-led way of doing it is that they let you play and that they give constraints that move you towards better and better motion. At least that's how I'd explain it. I think that there's obviously more to it, but just realize that when we start talking about this, um, this is all about motion. And I'm I'm so intrigued by motion and I'm so intrigued by getting us back to normal motion that I felt like this was an episode that I really wanted to have. Um, yes, I wanted more stability from it, but I think you'll really enjoy it. I did, and I learned a lot from it, so I hope you do too. Welcome to another episode of Spine and Body Podcast. I'm I'm really excited today. I, we actually we have a guest that I have been following for a couple of years, Dr. Rob Gray from Arizona State University, and he's recently put out a book, which is probably the only reason I was able to get him on here as a uh, as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really excited, and there's several reasons why I'm really excited. One is, is I feel like I hope I'm on the track that he has been on, which is. There is a there is a change or at least a movement in in the way that people coach and the way that people look at the progression of motion or the learning how to move that that he is part of or or some people would say started or you know has a great incredible influence in and we hope to have the same influence in in the treatment of back pain and how people move and the other reason is because a lot of the the ways that I've looked at stability have been somewhat augmented, somewhat uh, confirmed by by listening to him and and his group of of uh, experts that he talks to weekly. So, uh, Dr. Gray, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure, Sean. Yes, I'm on my uh, shameless 
self-promotion book tour <laughs> kind of thing. So, but I'm, I'm very happy to be here. This you know different kind of thing than I'm I'm used to doing. You know, I think about this kind of topic, but mostly it's you know sports practice and coaching. So I'm looking forward to talking with you. Good. So tell tell us what you do. So I am a professor at Arizona State. I've been kind of researching and teaching about kind of motor skills, skill acquisition uh, for a lot of years now. And I also do kind of consulting on the side. I work with some professional sports teams. I've worked with the U.S. Air Force. I did a lot of work in driving safety for a while. So I try to kind of straddle the fence of, of doing basic research that kind of advances these theories and then also applying it uh, to kind of solve you know, real world things, if you, if you will. Right. So the the perception and action podcast that you do, I I love because you know it fits so well into into what what we do as sports medicine doctors, which is you know there's a perception of the world around you and then the action that you take. Mm-hmm. But that led into this constraint led approach to coaching. How did all that take place? Yeah. So kind of over you know evolved over the years. So I did a lot of research in kind of in a laboratory setting where I had everything really controlled. And a large part of my career I spent trying to understand what experts do, whether it's a pilot or an athlete. And then I would understand, you know, they move in this way or they use this perceptual cue. And then once I went to try to apply it, you know, we're mostly working in baseball teams, I would go and say to the athlete, you should move like this, like the expert or lose this. And I found it didn't work at all. Right? It didn't work at all. You couldn't, they couldn't take on board the things I was saying. And they weren't, you know, even if they seemed to be getting it, their body wasn't doing it. So, so I really, I started to think more about, uh, you know, is there another way to get people to kind of do this? And the constraints that, you know, I kind of got more into the idea of self-organization. Your body's figuring things out on your own, its own. It's not really... Um, what you say is really not having influence. So I kind of, at the same time, got into a lot of reading and understanding of this idea of constraint that we can, instead of telling an athlete what to do or a performer what we can do, is we can add a constraint, something to the to the practice environment that kind of pushes them away from what they're doing now, and and towards something else. And but letting them find it on their own. That's kind of the key critical thing. Instead of giving them the solution. I'm going to change the practice design to help push you and encourage you to explore and find your own. So that's kind of the idea of the constraint set approach, adding something to the practice environment that usually takes something away that we don't like that you're doing and pushes you to explore for a new movement solution. And did you find with that that people began to move the same way or was there just this myriad of, of different ways that people accomplish the same task? Yeah, that that's what we really, I really started to, I think there was a combination I started to pay attention to looking, seeing the, the differences. You know, I spent a lot of my career trying to figure out what was the same between elite movers. And then when you kind of open your eyes, you notice there's more differences than you than you think. Yeah, yeah, no, I we started to see the more. And I, I can give you an example. Like one of the examples I worked on for a while, is, you know, you take, you have a young baseball pitcher that has been quite successful. They've been drafted by a major league team, and the way that they throw is effective. But you know, for um, that if they keep doing it that way, their their chance of injury is very high. So a common example is when they separate their arm from the body really early, right? Um, and kind of whip it, and it puts all the force in their elbow, and you probably you know your chance of having to have Tommy John surgery or something eventually is pretty high. So the way that I tried to you know 
correct that in the past was give verbal instructions, keep your arm in, keep, you know, that I, like I said, didn't work. So what we do instead now is add this constraint of a connection ball. So we ask you to hold this big kid's rubber ball against your body while you're pitching. And the idea is what we want you to do is try to make the ball go towards the mound, right? So we've given you this constraint that if I separate early, the ball will fall out and go sideways. There's no way I can do what I'm asking if they use their existing movement pattern. So they have to change somehow. But the key is I'm not telling them how what to do differently they're kind of, they have to kind of figure it out on their own so yeah once you start to do that we have noticed you know people do a lot of different things and there's so much individuality there, there, it's not to deny that there's some key you know i call them invariants there's some key things you need there right to move safely and move effectively and get as much force as possible but between those things there's a lot of variability and individuality for sure you know, it does seem like in sports, there's there's three kind of uh, holy grails, which is run faster, throw the throw harder, and jump higher, right? And it does seem like people have tried for a long time to try to figure out, you know, what's the magic sauce with each of those. And it sounds like, you know, you guys are basically saying there, there may or may not be a magic sauce, but we have to address certain things, you know, to kind of keep us first of all, from getting injured, but also to push people toward, because you can't just say, here's the magic sauce, do this, right? Yeah, for sure. I see that a lot with jumping and I see that a lot with speed, obviously baseball throwing or, or anything where the person, person throws harder, um, you know, is part of that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's the, you know, there's certain elements, like you said, that, you know, some that we want there, but yeah, the, the idea that there's one, one perfect technique or correct technique, I think, is uh, you know in the book I, my new book I call it a myth. <laughs> the idea of the one correct way to do things is I think kind of a myth. But that's often the way that we teach. We go to an instructor and they tell us bend your knees, keep your head down. Like they're basically giving us this one solution um, and getting us to try to repeat it. And you know it might work for some people, but not not for everyone. I don't think so. So do you think that's because we're looking at the we're we're isolating the wrong the wrong things when we're looking at experts or people who you know, throw the ball really hard or jump really high? Yeah, I think part of the problem is we're not the, I, I think a lot of the research out there and things are is misleading because we're basically, a lot of the studies you do, you, for example, in the, again, with baseball or, or golf or something like that, you have the person do the same action over and over. So I measure your pitching delivery for 10 fastballs and I see, oh, your elbow angle is very consistent. Okay, the key to, then the key to pitching success is having this elbow angle and repeating it. But what happens, of course, in a game, in the real world, like you said, with jumping, the conditions are always changing. Really, what defines the expert is their adaptability, how to adjust to different, throwing the same fastball nine innings later when you're fatigued or you're facing a different batter, a different pitch. So I think if we, if we tested people more under those conditions, we would see that experts move in different ways and they they don't repeat the same movement over and over. So what is the what is the perception action? And you talk about coupling. Is that where coupling comes in? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the idea of perception action and coupling is that your movements are linked to some picking up some perception from the environment, either the external environment, uh, you know, visual information, auditory information, or in your, a lot of your case, you know, internal and proprioceptive, tactile feedback, the idea that 
you know, these two things are linked together. Our movements are driven by information, which causes the information to change, and you kind of have this loop. Um, and the the point that I try to make a lot is a lot of times we practice things by breaking that apart, right? When you practice hitting a ball off a tee in baseball or dribbling around cones in soccer, you're performing an action, but you've taken away all the information that's driven, you know, driving that. Why do I go left? When, with a ball because someone's coming to my right, not because it's an orange piece of plastic, right? And I, I think we do that a lot in, in therapy and rehab too, right? You, you're taking away the functionality of the movement, right? You're just, you're just giving these people these abstract aesthetics almost to move in a way, whereas movement has a purpose, right? It's functional. Um, it's to get achieve some goal. Um, and that goal is you, you achieve by picking up information from your environment. Very good. So I've been really intrigued because it seems like there's this community of, of um, professors or, or PhD students or, and you know practitioners that have taken on this approach with you. And, it's, and it feels like, you know, you guys first started off with kind of codifying what movement is and, and, and this whole perception environment that we're talking about. And then with that, it feels like through your podcast that you guys built that first. Or, or at least you, you came up with the idea of all these different, you know, constraints. And then with that, you went back and built it before you guys advanced from there. At least that's the way it seems to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I would definitely like to give a, a lot of credit to the, you know, the, 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 there's a lot of people been working on these ideas from a long, for a long time. You know, one people that people always cite is Nikolai Bernstein, who was a Russian physiologist in the early 1900s. who came up with the, you know, the repetition without repetition idea. You, you repeat your goals, but not by repeating your movement. So it's been around a long time. I guess, you know, part of the thing I think we've tried to do is um, connect, you know, the academic, the theory research with the practitioner, coaches, and people like you that. So I think there's kind of the theory knowledge, then there's the empirical, experiential knowledge that so many coaches and therapists and everything that have that to really understand that you need both, right? The, the expertise. And so I think that's started to be what's happening more connection and putting some theory on top of uh you know things that people have already discovered work <laughs> and you know coach people actually working in the trenches as you say <laughs> so i think that's been part of it and so trying to link these concepts and trying to disseminate more the ideas i think you know that's what really i've been trying to do in, in my podcast so I think, yeah, just pulling it all together, I think, is really the pieces that were already there from some really great thinkers and people that developed these ideas. Yeah. So, you know, in, in, in an earlier podcast, I talked about uh, Nikolai Bernstein's frozen areas of frozen and areas of, of uh, freedom. Mm -hmm. And that is directly from you guys. I mean, I heard that I heard that on one of your podcasts. And, you know, and I'd heard, you know, uh, Leonardo da Vinci had once said, there, if all these places in your body's body moves, there has to be some place that's stable. So, I mean, it fit, it fit right in. So I was, I mean, that's one, that's one of the concepts that kind of drew me into what you guys were talking about. The other thing is, is that I coach, I played, I played sports. I was really interested in all those things. Of course, you know, you talk about other theories as you go through and a mm -hmm. lot of them, I, I, I have to pause and go back and look and see what those things are. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, um, <laughs> It, it just feels like you guys have kind of built this knowledge base that um, I'm glad you're putting out a book to kind of 
kind of uh, expand that out to, you know, rather than just a uh, one hour podcast. No, thank you. Yeah, because it is a really, you know, there's a lot of terminology and it can go kind of really <laughs> off the rails, sometimes get really far from application, I know, into the theory. So, yeah, with, with the book, where I tried to, you know, one of the things I tried to make is, you know, if people are interested in this kind of alternative idea, a place to start without getting I'm sure people still say there's a lot of terminology in it. You know, I can't help myself. I'm an academic, but uh, I tried not to go overwhelming with that. But, but yeah, that's, you know, and, uh, you know, discussions on our like journal club kind of things we've done. And, and I think we've all accepted it because this is kind of a, you know, very meta thing. It's a, it's exploration. We're all trying to understand this as, as we're going as well. You know, I've been doing it, as I said, for my whole career. So. Yeah, hopefully that's what's coming across. Oh, I'm 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 really intrigued by it, and you know the the thing is is that I'm I'm intrigued because I feel like we've been stuck doing the same drills we've always done, and uh, the same attempt to try to get people to move. I love the fact that you're building kind of this base of knowledge that then can be expanded out, but I'm also anxious to to start getting more and more of the, of the practical uses for, for coaches and hearing, especially with you putting this book out. I mean, if it, the more widely uh, accepted this becomes, it feels like more and more coaches will start producing drills that fit right with what you guys are saying and actually have, you know, some, some big time uh, effect in how people learn motion or, or, or is that already happening and I'm just not seeing it yet. No, I, I, I agree with you, Sean. I think, um, I think it started, it really depends on the area. And, you know, some sports are more, you know, doing this more than others, some areas, you know, and I think in, you know, we talk about more like physical therapy and rehab, and I think it's just starting. So there's a very small number of people that are kind of adopting these ideas. Yeah. So I hope so too. I think, you know, I, a large part of the, the fun of this is getting together and discussing and, you know, I, I always say when I consult a lot of what I do, it seems like I just sit there and ask why <laughs> a lot of times, you know, they, someone will show me a practice activity and I'll try just why in the process of them trying to go through explaining what their goals are and then we tweak a little bit. And, you know, so it's, that's a large part of what it is, just trying to have a purpose to a lot of things um, instead of doing it because we always did it that way is one of the things we're trying to change for sure. When I coached, it felt like my best drills were the ones where it was a competition. And and it's the same thing, you know, like I would treat, I would teach, um, you know, zone read where the quarterback has to decide whether the defensive end is, is going to get him or the running back and then, and then choose. And what I would tell the, what I would tell the defensive end is I would say, you can do anything you want. If you get the quarterback, you get a point, or if you get the running back, you know, which if you make the right choice, you get a point. And I'd tell the quarterback, if you, if you make the right choice, you get a point. And, and I left no, I, I didn't say you can't do this or you can't do that. I, I, it was basically one of those deals, you know, you have to go left or right, but that was it. So, um, it became this competition and, um, the less restraint as far as, you know, rules I put on it, the more each kid learned on their own. I mean, I guess the constraint was what we were doing, but that was it. Same uh, approach. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one of the core ideas is, you know, try to keep it in the game-like as much as possible. It's not to mean just let them, people always play games and scrimmage all the time. I think, you know, that what you described, you know, taking 
isolated play, you know, one of the things that's very common now in, in sports like soccer and basketball is called small-sided games where you just reduce the number of players and the space, right? So you can, you're, you can simplify things for the athlete and get them to focus on one thing without making it phony and, and take, breaking that coupling we talked about a few minutes. So had, instead of having them hit a tackling dummy, which has no information, <laughs> right? Have them play one-on-one. So yeah, that's, that's a great example uh, of how, you know, and then giving people points, you know, you know, one of the things we do, like in, I work in ice hockey sometimes, if we want to emphasize getting turnovers, you, you get two points if you score off a turnover and one if you get it for the regular way, you know, the usual way. You, so you can make these rules to try to encourage people to do different behaviors, but again, without telling them how exactly you given, trying to give them the answer. Is the goal to change how people coach or is the goal to kind of figure out uh, better ways to get people to move or is it a combination of both? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I think both. I think one of the things I kind of framed in the book, you know, it's not the only way to think of it, but I kind of lament uh, youth coach, sports coaching. The way we teach kids that the goal of PE and all movement things is the sport become an elite athlete. So we we do very, um, you know, like I said, very restricted, isolated drills of the one technique. And I think a lot of kids are, you know, when they can't get that, they they I'm not sporty, I'm not coordinated, and they they go they move away from that, and they never come back to the joy of movement, learn you know something like parkour or in you know something they could have gotten into if we just let them right and then down the road you get health problems because people aren't active and, and things so i think there's a bigger bigger goal for me too is, is you know i think there's injury prevention implications and and youth sports so i think that along with you know trying to make people athletes and, and coaches better i think and have more fun and allow for individuality i think there's these, these broad implications too for me so um, when you talk about uh, coordination, you and I, you know I want to talk about stability and coordination. I mean that's that fits right into my yeah. <laughs> figured, right yeah. into my patient group, right? So so um, what correlation have you seen between you know stability and, and acquisition of coordination? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Sean. I think you know in a lot of ways, your I think you you know your body is trying to make this battle between stability and, and exploration, right? It want, it, it want, you know, especially when you're learning, you want to try new things, find a new way to do the things, but you have this kind of pull to stabilize and keep things, in, you know, um, consistent and, you know, prevent injury and things like that. So I think, yeah, I think it has a big role. I think the, um, you know, the problem that can happen is, you know, the kind of pull for stability can it's so strong it can lead us into uh, solutions movement that are very limiting, you know. And, and in the book, sometimes we call it in, in in the theory we call them attractors, right? You get pulled into this, you know. That I give a couple examples uh, in, in the book. You know, I learned when I learned to swim, it was in a lake <laughs> at summer, and so I I didn't really learn proper technique about how to breathe underwater when I was putting my head down and all these. And then later in my life, I tried to do triathlons, and I I realized. It was very hard for me to change my my movement patterns, the coordination patterns, because I had a such a strong, stable solution that I developed because I wasn't really pushed. 
to develop a more advanced one. You know, some I was I was settled in the you know it's all kind of like the good is the enemy of great problem. I, I kind of settled and I established a stable attractor and, and and I couldn't get out of it. It was very hard to get out of it later in life. You can, but it's a challenge. So stability, I think, always is important. It's we really need it. We can't have complete chaos, but sometimes we need to break free from it and get out of it when the pat the stable patterns are not what we want. Anymore. Right, and you know that's kind of what we see. Um, you know, in people who get in pain is is that they'll have, you know, pain which makes them weaker in certain areas, and then they create new patterns of stability which oftentimes is breath holding or, you know, muscle tightness or fascia tightness, joint capsule tightness, things like that. And then for us, it's, it's breaking back out of that. So as you watch skill acquisition and you try to break somebody out of it, is it usually kind of this drop back to uh, the basics of motion? I mean, how does, or is that, or is that what you guys get into? Yeah. When I try to do it and when I work with coaches, the idea, you know, the, primary thing we try to think of is can we add something to the practice environment, the, uh, the constraint that takes away what you're doing, right? Uh, it's a solution we don't like. You know, can I, can I make something so you can no longer have your ar- arms separate or bend your knees really deep? So at, that's the ideal way that we try to do it. I'm trying to think of a way to develop a new task that whatever you're doing is not going to work anymore. Because you're right, well, once people get these really well learned things, just telling them not to do it, uh, it doesn't really work, right? They they really are locked in there. So I have to give them a new task where if they keep doing what they're doing, they're going to fail at this new task I've given them. You know, in baseball, for example, when I I try to teach batters to, to hit the ball a certain way, I'll put green in front of the the the, the plate. So if they swing, reach out too much, they'll hit the screen. <laughs> things like that. So you kind of you're again pushing them away by adding this constraint to find something else. So you know we had a we had a, a baseball player, and I don't know if I've talked about this before or not, but we had a baseball player who came in who had um, hurt his back, right? And we worked like crazy on trying to get stability back through his spine and strength back through his glutes. And he'd been throwing about 84. You know, he was a college baseball uh, pitcher; he'd been throwing about 84. So he goes out the next spring after working like crazy on on this stability through his spine and and strength through his glutes, and he uh, first time out through ninety three, and tore his rotator cuff. <laughs> yeah, very first time. I mean, it's not a laughing matter, but it is kind of one of those things where, you know, we start we start figuring out that we derive, you know, kind of power from different areas, and a lot of that ends up being different than where we think, right? Um, so yeah, I mean. You guys seeing uh, instances of that where you're left to go back and say, yeah, we're trying to do these things. This person is unable to achieve it. And, you know, maybe they ought to go back and work on, you know, something else. Yeah, I think so. I like to, you know, one of the things I like to, one of the constraints you have is your own individual constraints, right? So your own flexibility, your own strength. So sometimes the way I think we can best help you coordinate is by going back and kind of working on your capacity, your your own individual. So what I'm talking about is kind of, we tend to treat like skills separately from strength and conditioning or exercise, right? So pitching is not the same as being in the weight room. Whereas I think if we put them more together, right, you know, identifying, you know, this person 
doesn't have the, the power we need or the strength we need and we could develop some exercises, which I know is what you kind of do, right? I think if we link those things better, that's one way to kind of address that issue of, of you know, making it stable. Another thing, I don't know if this how this is with injury, this is a little bit trickier, but one of the other thing that works a lot for us in the methods we do is kind of um, taking a movement pattern you don't like and acting trying to make it worse. Um, so sometimes we have people, athletes that they land like a baseball pitcher lands not quite square on their, their front foot. Um, so what we actually do in those situations other people do is we, we take them into soft sand. And so when they land, it makes it even worse. Um, you can, and you also do that with, you can use a golf club that kind of is a flexible shaft. So if you have any kind of hitch in your swing, it makes it worse. So what, what we're actually doing is kind of augmenting the error. So the person kind of becomes more sensitive to it. And, and so, so things like that, um, um, are, yeah, yeah. Um, but I know it's a challenge. You're, you're, you're right. Um, you know, you do need these kind of throwing examples. I think a good example. Yeah, that's good. You know, there's these pieces you need, right? In, in terms of be able to throw hard safely. Um, in, in, so there are commonalities between baseball pitches they have, you know, um, you know, transferring the force, keeping the kinetic chains together, transferring the force effectively. Uh, you know, so I, when you don't, you know, it can be very dangerous. You know, you can get injury very easily. So, um, yeah. So those are some of the, some of the ways we think about it. What do you mean when you guys talk about an ecological approach? So the, the idea is that this comes from another, along with Bernstein, kind of the other big name in, in all of this is James Gibson, who was a, um, at Cornell uh, University for a long time. And he developed this area called ecological psychology. And, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's the traditional uh, approach to skill is, is very what we call asymmetric. The idea is you, it's all in your head. It's stuff you, you know, we talk about skill acquisition. You're acquiring something. You know, the classic example is a motor program. You know, you're acquiring all this knowledge. You're doing all this processing. Um, whereas, so it's all kind of brain focused, internal focused. Whereas Gibson proposed that, you know, he emphasized more that skill is a connection with your environment. Call it the ecology around you. That's where the name comes from. And so, uh, skillful movers are picking up uh, information from their environment. They're picking up the, the perceptual cues you talk to it about and adapting to it rather than developing all this internal, you know, stuff going on, mental models and, and pro motor programs. He um, argued that, you know, people are picking up direct information from their environment that lets them move. So that, that's, that's where the name kind of comes from. Um, it kind of goes against, you know, sometimes we talk about the information processing, anything that kind of more emphasizes what your brain's doing and internal processes versus being connected with your environment. So that was the whole basis of, of this, wouldn't that? I mean, because once you start bringing in this perception or the, you know, the ecology, basically everything around you, basically at that point you start saying, okay, we have to take that into account so much so that we have to change the way that we're trying. I mean, instead of it just being a software download, it's more of a growing into emotion. Yeah, it really goes against the way we think about. It's very different than the way we think about skill. We've all thought about skill for a long time, and you use the word, and I use. I slipped in. I use it to drill. Right when we talk about a practice drill, the the idea for a long time is you you become skillful 
like like a military exercise. You drill it into the person by having them repeat it over and over again until they don't have to pay attention to what the world around them anymore. They become the word we use automatic, reflexive. Right. So I can put a soldier in the environment and they'll execute the right thing I want them to without them having to think or pay attention. So we almost being skillful is like we do it so we can separate from the world so we can run off like a robot, like automatically. Whereas the ecological approach is arguing, no, really being skillful is about being aware and attentive to things around you and picking up, you know, information from your world that allows you to, to move skillfully. So it's a, it's a very, very different kind of approach and it has different implications for, you know, what's going to work in terms of training, in terms of whether, like we talked about, isolating and breaking down movements, like, uh, is, is going to work, which in the ecological approach, you don't, you don't really kind of like that idea because you're, you're separating yourself from the environment. Right? You're trying to take person out of the context of the environment. It's not going to really be beneficial. When I was coaching youth football, we would, we would try to get as many reps in as we could. And it, and as you know, it wasn't always drills. It was, it was scrimmaging or half line and things like that. And it was the same thing where we, we'd try to come up with as many times as we could say, yes, you're supposed to do this against the defense. And then the defense would get, be getting dominated over and over. And I'd say, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you allowing yourself to be beat so many times? And he'd say, well, I'm trying to be a good person in the drill. And I'd say, well, stop it. Try to win. Right? <laughs> yeah. And it seemed like those were the times when, when we as, you know, the athletes would get better at their, because they'd see so many different, the other person was trying so hard to, you know, it was just like a game, right? They were trying, they were trying to find ways to beat them. Does that fit into the model or is that just something I've noticed on my own? No, I think so too. I, you know, one of the big things along with kind of the things we've been talking about is we've emphasized is changing the way we think about variability, right? Variability and movement. It used to be noise, right? It used to be something you want to get rid of. If you, if you, uh, you know, a quarterback or whatever, you delivered the ball a slightly different way every time. Well, we got to keep repeating your mechanics, <laughs> right? Now we've kind of changed the view that variability is really beneficial. It allows you to make a throw when someone's in your face, do the sidearm throw, you know, like, so really good quarterbacks don't throw those the same way every time. They, they, they are variable in, in their movement. And so instead of trying to suppress that with strict repetition, let's make a hundred throws to the same receiver, or do a hundred golf shots to on a flat ground. Let's encourage the, this variability by adding variability to practice, right? So have the linemen start in different positions, use different uh, moves to get around them, swim move versus spin move, you know, and, and, and make adaptable athletes instead of these kind of, you know, trying to do this enhance this one perfect technique idea. So that's the idea, the variability idea is what's really changed a lot too as well. With us, with, with people who are in pain, they start to perceive pain and they will, you know, restrict motion to prevent it. And it becomes subconscious. They really restrict the ways that they, th or the things that they do because they're afraid of hurting. And we had a we had a mental health professional on here saying that that's one of the things they try to break down is this fear where they basically say, we have to change your perception of your pain because it is restricting you in so many different ways. And it's always interesting to me to hear you guys talk about perception of the outside world. And, and I think to myself how much it applies, you know, even in, even in motion that, that we're dealing with every day. No, for sure. I think pain is a 
really complicated series of constraints, right? It's, it, it's, you're organizing your movements around. There, there's some interesting research. They've actually tried to do this where, um, there's a study I reviewed a while ago where they, they actually put uh, lotion made of red pepper. So it caused pain on your elbow. And they had people learn to throw darts to see how you organize your movement with this con- new constraint of pain, uh, added to it. One of the things, you know, I review in the book, there's a growing body of research that shows low variability in movement is actually a predictor and highly correlated with injury, right? Um, there's a good study now on like runner's knee. People with runner's knee pain in their kneecap basically have lower variability in their joint angles when they run than healthy runners, right? They're restricting things, which only like, you know, it's just going to make things worse, right? You're just putting so much more stress on, on of the other things. You know, I, I think I'm a, I'm a runner as well. And I think everybody's had the experience where you, you keep trying to run through a, a tweaked knee and you end up the other hip. Right. Or <laughs> a week later, right? You're compensated from, and you really crunch down and lock down something on the other side, and you you, you cause an injury, <laughs> a compensatory injury. What you just said really struck me because, as an athlete or as somebody who moves, I, I've tried to find the best way to move for me. Because what I took from you earlier was is not everybody moves the same, but what you just said is that not everybody moves the same all the time. That's really interesting because we've always thought to ourselves, oh, hey, we're, you know, I watch sprinters run and I say, oh, I got to keep my toe up when I, when I, when I sprint or my arms have to move this way. And then you watch, you know, 10 people run in the finals of the hundred and not, not a one of them is exactly the same. But even beyond that, what you're saying is, is that not, not all of them will be exactly the same from one race to another a lot of times. Yes. For sure. You know, one of Bernstein's central ideas that, you know, there's this ever-changing context where, you know, both on the outside, there's this track you run on, and then inside, you know, you're going to get trauma, micro-traumas from working out, you know, your level of fatigue, that, you know, all these things are going to change, you know, subtly, you know, the sometimes depending on the sport, you know, how you execute your movements. And um, really great athletes are great adapters, I think. They can adjust to do these things really well, um, you know, rather than doing the exact same same movements all the time. Oh wow, that's a that's a that's a hard thing to kind of uh, unravel over the years, because now you just added a dimension. You know, I mean, I I have thought to myself, you know, uh, one of my sons he had a physical therapist watch him long jump, and he said, "Wow," he says, "You have elite hip motion," and I thought to myself, "Wow, maybe all these long jumpers have really good hip motion." But in fact, maybe they don't. Maybe they maybe they just adapt in so many different ways. And their ability to be a great long jumper is their ability to adapt to the long jump in so many different ways rather than just, you know, one isolated pinpoint motion. So I think there's a bit of both. I think there's certain key features. The you know, I, I the word I use is invariant, so opposite of variable. And, you know, tractors sometimes that have to be there, but how they get there, like in baseball, every good hitter is kind of squared up to the ball when they contact it. But the way they get there from hitter to hitter and within the individual hitter from uh, swing to swing can be very different. So I think there are some key, you know, key points there that you have to hit, but the way that you get there definitely can change. In the book, I also try to give some examples of, you know, kids 
like the one example has been study really interesting. Kids playing soccer in Brazil. You know, Brazil is known worldwide for being creative, innovative soccer players. A lot of their players, most famously Pele, they start by playing on a rough beach with an unequal number of players with different ages or on a rocky street. And which sounds like disadvantage, but you're actually starting them off by having them do it, have to adjust and adapt to all these things, right? They're playing against a kid that's two years older one time or a shorter kid or a taller kid or a rough ground. So maybe these kind of disadvantages of having a really variable environment is actually an advantage over playing on a perfect field every time with, you know, perfect training and and everything. So, so yeah, I, I think that's, it's a really shift in the the way we think about skills for sure. Very good. Well, I think that gives people a lot to think about coaches, sports medicine, et cetera. I'm incredibly interested in seeing where you guys go with this, you know, and, and how it evolves, which is one of the reasons why I continue to listen. I don't, I don't get every episode, but, um, you know, I try to listen as much as I can, especially some that really jump out at me. Yeah. But I hope that more and more people kind of jump on board and, and kind of listen, because I think where you guys are going with this is, is necessary and, and valuable. So tell us, tell us the name of the book. Sure. It's called How We Learn to Move, uh, A Revolution in How We Practice and Coach Sports Skills. So it's, I call it a revolution because I hope we, we, as we demonstrate, I think it's a really shift, shift in thinking. You can find it on Amazon, uh, um, my website where I have everything about what I do for perceptionaction.com. So you can find the link there and in, in, the, in the podcast as well. And then quickly, what's the best way to people? I'll, I'll put your information in our show notes, but what's the best way for people to get a hold of you or um, follow you? I'm on uh, Twitter. If you're used Twitter, which is uh, shaky weights is my weird. You can find the again on the website or Rob Gray at ASU.edu. If you're an old school emailer, I, I am too. So uh, I respond to that. I try to respond to those. As well. Very good. Very good. Well, Dr. Gray, I really appreciate it. I, this, I know this is, you know, taking time out of your day. So I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Sean. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate your download and taking the time to listen. Please go to whatever source you normally get your podcast from and subscribe. Also, visit bodyguitar.com for show notes and to learn about our clinic. Living longer is not near as important as living better. These episodes are meant to advance the goal of living better. One of the best and hardest ways to achieve this goal is to pray for your enemies and forgive those that hurt you. Life is about relationships. Build them. Until next time, body guitar practitioners, performers, and tuners, get your body in tune. This is Dr. Sean Wheeler on Spine and Body Podcast, and I will see you on the next episode. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare studies, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their health providers for any such condition.